faced with a very serious situation where people are turning from God, turning from His way, for various and sundry reasons. And I consider it a very, very serious situation and do appreciate that that fast came at the time that it did. Uh, we do need to be praying and asking God to start the gathering, to start sorting out and solving the problems that are within the church. Um, sadly, we know that only 10% are going to respond at the right time and rebuild uh, and do what needs to be done. Those who go into tribulation, it seems from Zechariah, is, is it 11 or 12, right in that area, 12 I guess maybe, that another third will repent during the tribulation. But I hope we don't have to go there. I hope we don't have to go through that. I hope that we can be part of those who gather to restore the temple and build the walls of Jerusalem back and prepare the way for the prophecies to come to pass. So, it should be a daily prayer with us. That God will have mercy, that He will lead us to serve Him in the way that He wishes to be served, and that He will not give up on us, but will have mercy and allow us to be a part of what He is about to do. I say about to, I'm not trying to set a date, but I think it is quite soon because of looking at the church and its condition and looking at the world and what is appearing to be beginning to happen there. So, we have to endure through it all. We have to remember God's Scriptures. We have to remember what He told us to do, and that is to give Him no rest until He brings these things to pass. So, we need to be going before Him on a daily basis, just like the woman went before the unjust judge, and imploring him, beseeching him, asking him, pleading with him to fulfill these things. I take it that there is a certain amount of leeway in when he does some of these things. Otherwise, it would do no good to pray, and he wouldn't ask us to. But he tells us to do so, and therefore, part of it may fall on us to get things rolling as soon as possible. Now, that may not change the time of the tribulation. It may not change any of the ultimate dates that God has set. And he has said that he is going to cut something short. He did not delineate which. He just said no flesh would be saved alive if that were the case. I don't think it's probably the tribulation. He said so many places how long it would endure in, in three different ways. Days, months, and years. But the seven last plagues are the time when finally all man would be destroyed if Christ did not return. So it might be that that honeymoon he's taking with his bride is cut short so that he might return before mankind and Satan destroys all human flesh. But the amount of time we have to build a temple and so on uh, is not laid out specifically. 
the time to build Jerusalem is laid out specifically in Daniel 9. A command will be given at a certain point, and then it is a timed prophecy. So there is only that much time for those events to occur before the tribulation starts right on time. But when he starts the gathering, I see nothing in there that gives a specific timeline or date. So there may be an opportunity for us to overcome, to grow, to truly seek God with all our heart and find him, and he might start some of these things sooner. But if we sit around and let ourselves be discouraged or worried or frustrated or it ain't ever going to happen or whatever emotion might go through us, then we're giving in to the negative and the darker side. Instead, we need to look forward in hope and in strength and, as he said, in good courage without fear and wait for him and look for him, as Isaiah 8 tells us to do. And if we will do that, he says, we will be the restorers of the waste places and those through whom he works with signs and wonders. So there is much, much encouragement in the scripture if we will focus on those things rather than on, well, why isn't it happening? Anytime you're looking at the around like Peter did when he walked off the boat, you'll sink. When you look to Christ and to God and build and renew and strengthen your relationship with them and read the scriptures about these things, then you will be encouraged and you will find strength to move forward in spite of whatever delays and difficulties and people falling away or whatever might be happening. Well, I guess that's a either an announcement or a mini-sermonette, I don't know what, but some of those things on my mind as a result of the fast and the purpose of it and what God has planned for us to do. But let's go from there back into 1 John 3. We're discussing here in John the subject of God's love, not human affection. We have some of that. But it is God's love that we so desperately need to have the right attitude toward the world around us and toward each other. Uh, we left off last time at verse 14, where he says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. So he's giving us a definitive thing here. If we have learned to love people and our brothers here, rather than being negative or looking down upon or despising or finding fault with, but have come to truly love them, then we have passed that threshold of headed toward life eternal rather than death eternal. So, God is making it very clear here. 
that eternal judgment is based upon how we interact with our brothers and sisters in the church and to that to a certain degree even with the world around us to have godly love toward them, not wish destruction upon them, not hate them, not look down upon them, but simply be thankful that we've been called to understand his truth and they have not. So they are very limited where we have opportunity that they do not yet have but will have someday. God loves them all, and he gave his Son that they might all be saved in their order and in their time when he chooses to call them. So we cannot despise and hate and look down at the world. We have to love them as children of God. We don't have to love their ways and their sins and all that, but they are the children of God. And he speaks particularly of the brethren. Because we love the brethren, he that loves not his brother abides in death. In other words, he's still headed toward eternal death. God is not going to allow hatred, animosity, negativity, and put-downs, and gossip, and slander, and backbiting in his kingdom. It simply will not be there. Now, for what it's worth, I received a re- an email recently in which someone, I'm not sure, was really complaining. and uh, may not have been complaining at all, really. But there has been a lot of negativity and a lot of bad things said around here for quite some time, and I'm probably the brunt of 80% of it. But the comment was made... Though when this individual talks to people out here, it's hard to get them to say anything other than things are okay and we're doing all right out here. In other words, someone wants to know what's really going on, maybe, and wants to hear whatever bad things might be simmering or boiling on the fire. And maybe a little frustrated, I don't know, that they can't find out what's really going on because they can't get anybody to talk about it. Now, you know what I think of that? I think that's wonderful. I think it's wonderful that we're maybe finally learning not to put each other down, not to backtalk one another, not to show animosity and whatever level of hate is involved. Hate has many variations or many shades. But negativity is the same thing, just a milder form than cursing or killing, you see. And if someone has difficulty finding negative comments, we have made a major major breakthrough, brethren. Do we understand that? Now, I don't want to break our arms patting us on the back. But I do want to give credit where credit is due. 
because how much have I talked to you and me about what we let come out of our mouths and what we let go through our minds. So if someone is taking note that they're having trouble finding scurrilous, negative comments, I take that as a good sign. I take that as improvement and growth. And I was sure glad to see that statement. Can't get anybody to say anything bad, more or less, is kind of what the, was being said. I'm paraphrasing. Maybe we're passing from death into life. Maybe we're learning what our attitude should be toward one another. Let's go on then in verse 15. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now Christ made that very clear. Keep your finger here. We'll obviously be back. But notice Matthew 5. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, You shall not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. So, the Ten Commandments does say, you shall do no murder. You shall not, in that sense, kill your neighbor. It doesn't mean that executions could not be performed by the government as required uh, because of egregious sin or murder or whatever the count might be. But people were not to murder one another. That is very clear. But I say to you, that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. The without cause is not even in the Bible. It's not in the Greek. Whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. So here Christ says that anger, negativity, attitudes against, put us in danger of the judgment. Now, that's scary, because it is human to have negative emotions toward other people. It is human to be angry and stay angry. But he says it puts you in jeopardy, in danger of the judgment. Now, why does Paul tell us to esteem others better than ourselves? It is human nature, it is within us all, to lift ourselves above others in pride, in ego. We like to think well of ourselves. Sometimes we have difficulties with it because of what they call low self-esteem. Insecurities and so on. But it is very easy for us to criticize, belittle, put down be angry or hold grudges against or just not like someone. But he tells us we are to esteem them higher than ourselves. In other words, we should automatically train ourselves to think that that other person is probably better than I am. Now, how often do we live up to that? 
where we look at somebody and say, that person is probably a better human being than I am. I think that is rare in the human experience. That's why it's in the Word of God. We need to train ourselves to look up to the children of God as if they truly are the children of God, and they have the potentiality to be in the family of God someday, no matter who they are. Now, you and I know ourselves at least somewhat. We deceive ourselves a great deal, yes. But we know, if we're at all honest with ourselves, where our minds are capable of going and how deceitful and desperately wicked human nature truly is. So, if you know your sins, faults, weaknesses, lacks, compromises, frustrations, depressions, attitudes, and so on, and you know that you fall short of being like God, and then you think of other people as even worse than you are, you have a problem. You have a problem. We need to train ourselves to like people, to love people, to enjoy people. And we need to train ourselves to assume that they are trying to do God's will and way and that they are probably better than we are. That's what Paul is trying to get across. In other words, don't look down upon them. Don't judge, judge them to be lesser in value or in conduct or in thought than you are. And that is our natural tendency. We have to overcome our natural tendencies because they are filled and fraught with human nature. And human nature tends to look down on others so we can feel good about ourselves or for whatever motive and reason we find, and there are many that cause us to lift ourselves up. But he tells us that we are to get rid of pride and ego and self-centeredness, that we are to be outgoing and centered on others. And to be centered on them, we need to value them highly. Now, one way we do it is by sacrificing our time and our energy for them. Instead of being self-centered and putting ourselves ahead of them, we sacrifice our energy, our time, our thoughts, our prayer for others. And if we do it with the right motivation, not just to be proud of how righteous we are or self-righteous about it, then we will grow in being like God. Whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, You fool, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, You fool, fool shall be in danger of Gehenna fire. 
we have to be very, very careful in our attitude toward other people. And God puts it right here on an eternal basis, does He not? Now, I've preached about this a lot over the last couple of years, about what our attitude has to be toward each other. And I've gone to Matthew 25 and through the Psalms in various places. And maybe people get tired of hearing the same old story. But you know what? It's the biggest problem Christians have. is coming to have the love of God and not the animosity and negativity of human beings. And our judgment truly is based upon how we treat one another. And he says, the way you treat one another there in Matthew 25 is exactly the way I take it that you treat me. And John is going to underline that as we go on through here. This is a serious life and death issue. It's about eternal life and death. Now, if you're not intending to change, you're going to resent me for keeping on going over these scriptures. And then I'll become the one that you hate and are angry toward. I'm sorry. But everywhere we go in the Bible, we come up with the same thing. doesn't matter whether it's in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, in the book of Psalms, or whether it's in 1 John, or John, or any of the other scriptures. We keep coming back to the same thing. Personal, interpersonal relationships are very, very important in terms of how God will judge us. And Christ is making that very clear here. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, you go before God to pray. And there remember that your brother has something against you, whatever it might be. Leave there your gift, your prayer, before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift before God. God says, if you have animosity, grudges, ill feelings, negative thoughts, or know that somebody has something against you, you are to try to solve that before even bringing your prayer before Him. Now, I would not say that He means here, if we're in a raunchy attitude toward someone, we should not come and pray about changing our attitude first. Because if you go to your brother with a raunchy attitude, you're going to get a raunchy result. But if you're leaving your gift before the altar expecting God's blessing on you, that's the gift you leave there. You cannot be lovey-dovey, cozy, comfy with God if you are not in a right relationship with your brothers and sisters. John will say more about that a little later on as well. Now somebody says, well, we just need to use Matthew 18 and go to our brother." That has a great deal of truth to it. In fact, that is essentially what Christ is saying here. Now, in Matthew 18, he puts it, if they have sinned against you. Here, Christ saying, as if 
your brother has something against you. So either way, we have a responsibility. Now, I have had many people over the decades tell me that they've tried to use Matthew 18 and it just doesn't work. Now, the reason it doesn't work is because it is not done properly. Most, I would say 90 to 95 percent, maybe I'm being conservative, of the time people approach Matthew 18 the wrong way. Christ said there that the purpose is to gain your brother. But most people go to try to straighten out their brother. They go with an attitude themselves. You sinned against me, you better repent. They have the attitude in mind, I'm going to straighten them out, or wreak vengeance on them, or they had better repent because they have hurt me. So it is done in selfishness, in anger, in frustration, and comes out wrong. And when it's done, you have not gained your brother, but deepened the animosity in most cases. So if you're going to use Matthew 18, you had better be absolutely sure you are not doing out of anger, out of self-righteousness, out of pride, or ego, or any form of selfishness. That you have truly humbled yourself before God, and are you willing to humble yourself before man. Sometimes it might require fasting and prayer. Because if you don't go in meekness and humility the results will be wrong. If you do not esteem that other person higher than yourself when you go to invoke, as we might say, Matthew 18, on them, you are in a wrong attitude and you will not accomplish your purposes. And I dare say the percentage of it being done in the wrong attitude is probably more like 99% in my experience in the church. You're there to gain a result, to gain friendship and love and happiness and peace between you and that person. And if there is any anger, animosity, selfishness, or vengeance, or any of those negative things involved, then the results will be less than what you had hoped. You're not there to prove them wrong. You're there to learn to love each other better. Any other use of Matthew 18 falls short of the mark. So any time you consider, well, I'll, they sinned against me, I'll take care of this, I'll prove them wrong, and I'll take witnesses if I have to and make them repent. If you have that chip on your shoulder, if you have that attitude, you'll get nowhere but deeper in trouble. So let's understand that. I'm not condemning anyone. I'm not putting anyone down for times they may have tried Matthew 18. 
Maybe they just didn't realize. Maybe they were hurt, and maybe that hurt came out. But let's be sure we have the proper motive if we ever go to that extent. In other words, you don't need to go to somebody and say, I'm going to Matthew 18 you. Why can't you not mention Matthew 18? Why can't you just go to your brother and say, Why, see, we haven't been getting along too well, or there seems to be some difficulty between us, lack of communication or whatever. Uh, I, I want to love you. I want to be close to you. I want to be your friend. How can we work this out? How can we repair our relationship? The minute you mention Matthew 18, they're going to stiffen anyway. I'm starting a legal process here, and if you don't listen to me, I'm going to bring witnesses. And Boy, you don't listen to the witnesses, I'm going to take you to the church. They're going to put them on the defense immediately. They're not going to be receptive right from the get-go. So, you can do Matthew 18 without a dramatic announcement. You can go to your brother or sister if there are difficulties between you. And you should be able, if everybody's not filled with ego, pride, vanity, and self-centeredness, to sit down and talk it out and hopefully resolve it. Now, in some cases, that simply is impossible. If people are so polarized, you can try, and you might get nowhere. But you can pray, and maybe you can try again. But there comes, sometimes there comes a point where people are simply not willing to change. That's why we have tools like this fellowshipment and marking and various things that God has given us to separate those out who are causing trouble in the flock, disturbing the peace are creating division. So there is a point at which something has to be done if attitudes simply will not change. But we need to be humble and meek and give them every chance to succeed, if at all possible. Now, Christ did get angry at times. He was angry the day he drove the money changers out of the temple. He is very slow to anger, and his wrath only lasts an instant, he says. Now, once he ran them out of there, he did not hold that against them forevermore. And there were times when he called a snake a snake with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Whited walls and open sepulchers and all kinds of things that he called them. Now, he was letting them know what they were in hopes that they would get the point and change. But he did not hate the Pharisees and Sadducees. He had anger, he got the deck cleared, and he went on about his business. And he even went to dinner with them at times and taught in front of them. He taught in front of them a lot because they were always hanging around trying to find something to trip him up on. 
Now, Paul even named the names of those who had done great harm to him or to the church. So there is a time for that. But generally through life, when things are not that polarized, we should be able to come to one another as brothers and sisters and solve the difficulties among ourselves. We're here to be family. Now, family, we've all been in families, haven't we? Some better, some dysfunctional, some hard to even call a family, but whatever. We've all had experiences. And we have to learn, even though we may sometimes have difficulties with each other, families tend to come back to one another eventually. Brothers and sisters can get upset with one another, but yeah, over time they get over it and they're friendly again. And The blood connection is there. And with us, the spirit connection is there, even though in all cases it might not be a physical blood connection. But the Spirit of God can be a very powerful thing, more powerful than blood. And God has told us that He called us away from our physical families to come here and have brothers and sisters, even in this life also. And He meant that those whom He calls together for His purposes are to be our brothers and sisters. They are to become our family. And Paul even instructed Timothy as a young minister to treat the older people as fathers and mothers, the younger as brothers and sisters, so that there should be a family atmosphere. The minister in the suit approach that Worldwide took was a derivative of the business world that Herbert Armstrong grew up in. Yes, familiarity can breed contempt. It doesn't have to. We can love one another in spite of ourselves. None of us are perfect. Certainly not me. And I well know that. But I move among you in street clothes. I work side by side with you when there's projects we can do. I joke with you and kid with you and try to be a brother to those who are brother age or a father or grandfather or whatever. I'm getting old. But nonetheless, it's to be a family relationship. So let's work toward that. And if we do get upset with one another or our communication breaks down, we have no right to be mad and angry. In fact, God says right here, if you're going to receive blessings from me, don't even ask until you go and fix things, if at all possible. That's his instruction. He's not going to listen. He says, don't even do it. Forget it. If you've got a bad attitude, you need humbled and become meek. Okay, he'll listen to that. He'll help you with his spirit to get in the right attitude so you can approach your brother or sister in the right way. But don't ask for blessings. Don't ask for his favor. Don't give him a gift expecting something in return until you fix things. I don't think I can emphasize enough 
or harp on too much. The whole idea that God judges us by how we interact with one another. He makes it so plain, so many places, and is right here. Let's go on to uh, verse 43 of this same chapter. You have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Then a lot of people say that. I'm going to love my neighbor, I'm going to love those that love me, but I can hate people all I want. Or I can have animosity or grudges or things against people. It's just a matter of degrees. People say, well, I don't hate that person, I just despise them. <laughs> you know, I just can't forgive them. Or, they're just so bad, they're not worth my time and energy. However you might phrase it. See, it's a matter of degrees. Hatred can be virulent. It can be nasty and open and wild. Or it can be subtle. It's a matter of degrees. Any feelings of negativity toward or put down against or uh, emphasizing the faults of is a degree of hatred. Some hatred is pale gray, some is deep black. It comes in all shades. There's not room for any of it. Let's see that. I say to you, love your enemies, not despise them in varying shades. Well, I don't hate that person. I just don't like them and despise them. Bless them that curse you. Now, there's a tall order right there. If someone curses you, dislikes you, spreads stories about you, he says to bless them. Do good to them that hate you in whatever degree. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. It is not in our nature, brethren, to have someone who despises who can't stand the ground we walk on or hates the fact that we still breathe or whatever their attitude might be. It is very, good, very, very hard for us to love them and bless them and do good to them. It goes against every fiber of human nature. But that's the standard that God sets before us. Now, do we all fall short of it? Yes, we do. Do we do better some days than others? Yes, we do. Do we do better with some people than others? Yes, we do. But we need to be working on it on a daily basis with everyone because that is the ultimate goal, is to come to have the attitude that Christ is talking about right here. Now, we need not be discouraged because we find ourselves short of the mark. We just have to keep striving to reach the mark. And it is not an easy task. 
He goes on to say in verse 45, "...that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good." and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God does not begrudge. He does not hold back because we are either just or unjust. He lets the sun rise and the rain fall on both. He lets the wheat grow together with the tares. To see if maybe they will produce fruit. If possibly. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't times when we have to separate someone out who is causing division and problems. But we're talking here in the general spectrum of human circumstances and how we ought to be toward one another. And even if we do have to disfellowship or personally mark someone so that no one can even talk to them, It is out of love. Isn't that what Paul said? He says, Mark that man that he might be turned over to Satan the devil so that hopefully he will repent and change his attitude and come back strong. And in that particular case in 1 Corinthians 5, that individual did repent and did come back. Then, of course, nobody would accept him anymore because he was on the fritz, on the outs, had sinned. I'm not going to let that person back now. No. The whole point was that they might be led to repentance. To grasp that being cut off from the body causes withering and failure and death. Now, we need to be as close to the body of Christ as we can get. That's why he tells us there in Hebrews 10.25, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need to be here, front and center. We need to be joined to the body, as close to the body as we can get. We need to interact better with one another than we do. Spend more time with each other than we do. I need to, with you. I get busy with this and that, and I know I need to visit people more, and I don't get it done, and I castigate myself, and my wife gets on me about it too. But there's so much to do, and I kind of put it aside, especially if there's confrontation, but just friendly visits. I need to make more of. I know that. It's not that I don't care. I just get busy with this and that, and I need to make a schedule, I guess, and get around to see everybody more, just to be friendly and to interact more and try to get closer with everybody. And we all need to be doing it with each other. Maybe we've had enough upset and enough discord and enough attitudes around here that we're a little careful or afraid or whatever. But with those who remain, we need to strengthen one another and help one another, not ignore one another. So that's something we can work on. I'm not talking here in terms of the context of those who despitefully use us and persecute us. I'm just talking about in general, so that we can improve our communications. Maybe we won't have to go to one another quite as often about, you hurt my feelings or you sinned against me, 
if we spend more time with one another and communicate better and learn to get along with one another better. And if we have personality issues or so on that tend to create friction among us or between us, and some people do, I mean, there are people that you tend to have an affinity for more than you do others. It's just more in common or more to talk about or you just enjoy their personality more than you might someone else's. And there's nothing wrong with that. Christ obviously had John as his closest apostle or friend. He spent time with all of them, but he was closer to John, and John made that very clear than he was to any of the others as a personal friend. There's nothing wrong with that as long as we do not exclude others. He did not exclude any of them, even Judas. He spent time with and ate dinner with Judas. Now, Judas, Judas was not overtly sinning day by day, but he had been chosen as the one who would make that mistake. And Christ knew who he was and knew what he would do, but he did not cast him aside. Now, Judas went out from them once he had done what he did and hung himself. He disfellowshipped himself from the others because of his sin, because of what he did to our Savior. And we've done the same thing to him with our sins. So we don't despise or look down on Judas even, do we? Because he did nothing to Christ that I have not done. I betrayed him a lot more than the three times that Peter did that one night. I betray him every time I fall short of the mark of the glorious high calling of God. We all do. But we can't despise one another for our failings. We help and encourage the weak. Someone's struggling. We do what we can to help them, to encourage them, to strengthen them, or try to, to love them. Let's go back to First John 3 now. Whoever, verse 15 again, hates his brother as a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God. He said, here's how we perceive, here's how we understand, here's how we come to know the love of God, okay? Because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He loved the world so much, he was willing to die for sinners. We have to be willing to lay down our lives for our brothers here who are less than perfect. Every one of us has warts and parasites. Every one of us has anomalies, personality difficulties, sins, attitudes, discouragements, frustrations. No one is exempt from the trials, troubles, tribulations, attitudes, and problems of being on this planet with Satan on the loose and our human nature to contend with. 
We all have our frustrations. So he said, If you perceive the love of God, the true definition of God's love, then you're going to lay down your life for the brethren. Your time, your energy, your thoughts, your feelings, your prayers. Remember James 1, 22 through 26, which we read recently? It's not the hearers of the word, but the doers. We can talk about love from now till the cows come home. But it does no good unless we lay down our lives for the brethren, even as Christ laid down his life. He laid it down physically, but he says in Romans 12, 1, we are to become living sacrifices. We don't have to have our throats cut, hopefully, and offered that way. But we are to sacrifice our lives as living sacrifices. Now, we could cut each other's throats, or our own throats for that matter, and it's tantamount to the same. And we would be dead and could do no one any good. God has never been satisfied with the blood of bulls and goats or humans. He doesn't want us to be sacrificed that way. Now, He made that ultimate sacrifice for a purpose and a reason. But He wants us to stay alive, and He wants us to dedicate our lives to the welfare and the benefit of other people. Now, how easy is it for us to get involved in what we are doing in our own lives, in our own ways, in our own thinking, and go blissfully through life with little thought for those around us? I already said it's very easy to do. I find myself doing it. We need to make some changes. We need to spend more time with one another. We need to spend less time entertaining ourselves or taking care of ourselves. Now, yes, we are supposed to work and we are supposed to provide for ourselves. We are supposed to take care of ourselves, if at all in any way possible. God makes that very clear. But then that free time beyond making a living, beyond taking care of the physical needs of ourselves and our families, We are to use much of our free time to aid and abet and help and strengthen and encourage and do things for others. Not just have nice thoughts, but to actually sacrifice our time and energy for others. Lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, when Christ was on the earth, He spent a great deal of time interacting with people, did he not? He did present his body as a living sacrifice for 33 and a half years, or what part of that he was old enough to even do so. And then he did the ultimate sacrifice on top of it. But he was here to help in any way he could. 
verse 17, But whoso has this world's good, who has money, assets, whatever, and sees his brother have need, and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? If we have and are not willing to give, we do not have the love of God. It's that clear and that simple. Now, there are other scriptures that balance that statement. That is a general overall statement of truth and the way we ought to live. However, there are scriptures that modify that to some degree. If your brother have need. Now, why does he have need is a legitimate question. If he refuses to work, for some reason is lazy or incompetent or has an attitude or whatever, and is not willing to do what is necessary to support himself, God says not to feed, not to care for, and not to give to that person. He makes a very clear statement along those lines. Do not support those who do not make an effort to support themselves. On the other hand, there can be issues that make people sometimes absolutely unable to take care of themselves. But that is a very rare circumstance. I have seen YouTube or examples or film or whatever, read articles about people who were paraplegics, could not move their hands or their feet, but could move their tongue, their lips, their mouth, and they learned to hold controls in their mouth whereby they could work on a computer and found a way to support themselves as total vegetables. Well, not total vegetables, but vegetables from the Adam's apple down, let's say. Where there is a will, there is generally a way. And we excuse ourselves so very easily for this reason and that reason. Now, we'd best be honest with ourselves and take care of ourselves if there is any possible way to do it. Then if for reasons beyond our control we have need, then God says we are not to shut up the bowels of compassion, the feelings. We are to help people where people truly need help. So, when is which? That is a very difficult question to answer. It is hard to know everyone's motivation. It's hard to know their background and their character. It is hard to know always what their difficulties are. But, it is a wonderful opportunity to learn wisdom, 
to learn to apply all the ins and outs and aspects of God's work. God put us here to learn wisdom, to learn to make good and right and proper decisions, to weigh the pros and cons, the circumstances, and to come up with an answer that will cause us to do the right thing. It is not always easy to do. Sometimes it's very, very difficult. So, we have to consider all the scriptures on a matter and then determine as best we can what our obligation should be toward each and every individual. And you have to treat people differently. Do you understand that? You can't treat everybody exactly the same. Wasn't it in James that we read that some make a difference and have compassion on them and others jerk out of the fire? You have to be able to assess what which person needs. Do they need encouraged and strengthened to do what's right or do they need a kick in the behind? And it varies. And there are cases that can be made for each. Otherwise, it would not have been put that way. And it takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of God's love to know which is which. Now, God does that, doesn't He? Sometimes He's merciful, He's compassionate, He's patient, He gives us every chance and space to repent. And then sometimes, He gives us a licking. <laughs> and He has to make that judgment of which we need the most. Now, I don't pray for lickings very often. Very, very rare. I pray for mercy and compassion. But sometimes, I don't respond properly to mercy and compassion, so I need a licking. And sometimes I get one. God knows what He's doing. He chastens every son whom He loves. But He's telling us here what our overall attitude should be. Not to shut up our bowels of compassion. How dwells the love of God in someone who shuts up and doesn't help when help is truly needed? Now, yes, we need to learn to teach people how to fish. Don't just give them a fish, because you have to give them a fish every day. But if you teach them how to fish, maybe they'll learn to fish on their own. So... Whatever needs to be done, needs to be done in love and concern for that person so that they might ultimately succeed in what we're here for, and that is to be upstanding members of the God family and do whatever we can toward them to see that that happens. Verse 18, just as James and Peter really put it, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Don't just think nice thoughts. Don't just think I ought to do this for someone. Go do it. How many times do we think, well, I ought to go do this, or I ought to go say something to somebody. I could help them this way. And then we get busy and it goes by the boards and doesn't happen. We need to be conscious of this. But nice thoughts you have towards somebody doesn't really help them a whole lot. Christ put that very nicely there in Matthew 25. 
where he said, you know, you have a brother that's hungry or naked, and you say, be warmed and filled. Hope you find some clothes. That's not his love. That's human nature. He said, no, feed him. Get him some clothes. Take care of him. Shelter him if he needs it. Help him get on his feet so that he can take care of himself. That's the ultimate goal, is that everybody be able to take care of themselves. Yeah, we got health issues. Maybe we can be healed. Maybe we can take better care of our bodies so that they don't betray us. The body is the temple of the Spirit of God. And He gives us an absolute responsibility to be good stewards of our body to only put in them that which will cause them to grow and thrive and be healthy, and not to put in them that which causes them to break down and be sick and infirm. And if we expect healing from Him, we need to take responsibility for ourselves. Some people don't like it when I get on taking care of the body and what we should and should not eat and imbibe. They get all huffy about it, and they don't want to change their habits. What is conversion, brethren? Conversion means change. I don't care if you've done it this way for 50 years. It isn't God's way. Find out what you can best do for your body. Because you are here to be a living sacrifice and to serve others. And if you stay sick and don't do whatever you can to improve your health and whatever it is about your body that betrays you, then you are not being a good steward. And God requires that of us. God's way involves every part of life. Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, the spiritual is reflected by the physical. That's what he's saying here. Don't do it in word or in, in tongue. Do it in deed. Actually accomplish it. Now, I know we sometimes have health problems that are very, very severe. But what are we doing about them? Are we going ahead and doing what we like? And then depending on medicines to take away the symptoms? Or are we putting things in our body that will allow them, at least to some degree, to repair themselves and fix themselves and put us in better shape? Because God says to be good stewards of everything. And our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, just as our minds are. But he uses both. He comes and dwells in us. And our bodies should reflect God. And our minds and emotions should reflect God. So we all have work to do, don't we? We have changes to make. But that's what conversion is all about. And conversion is never complete. As long as we're human, we're going to have changes to make to be more like God. We'll never, ever get to the point that we can look around and say, Man, I'm perfect. 
I made it. Now, Paul knew he wasn't perfect when he said, Hey, I'm at the end of my life. I'm about to die. And in spite of myself, I think I've run the course pretty well and I'm, I'm going to make it. But that was at the end of a life of overcoming and striving and being faithful and enduring to the end of his life, even as we must. Not to give up, not to be discouraged, but to realize we fall short and that we need to make up ground as fast as we can. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. He says that to all seven churches, all people. Take me as I am, Lord, is way, way too Protestant. God does not want you as you am. He just doesn't. He wants you to grow, to overcome, and to be different than what you am. And I know I'm misusing grammar. I'm doing it for effect. He wants us to change, brethren. He wants us to change our attitudes toward one another. He wants to change the way we treat and interact with one another. He wants us to help one another more. That's what he's talking about here. Don't love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Well, I don't serve because of this, or I don't serve because of that. There is no excuse. There is no excuse. You find a way to serve and be, be a living sacrifice, because that's what God assigns to us and tells us to do. Find a way. Some can do more than others because of various constraints. And we need not be discouraged. We just need to do the very best we can and then try to improve our circumstance as much as we can and pray to God for healing and help or whatever so that we can do more. But we need to have that goal and purpose before us. And then we don't need to go from there into the other ditch and say, well, I serve all the time. I'm always helping people. I'm always doing this or that. Now, there's a Pharisee for you. Don't I fast twice in the week? Don't I give alms? Don't I do this? Don't I do that? So it's easy to go from nothing and justifying it to doing something and then to get all proud and self-righteous and egotistical about it and look down upon others because they don't serve as much as maybe you do. That's why we esteem others better than ourselves. And we don't put ourselves above them in our assessment of how much we do. We do not let our right hand know what our left hand is doing, God says. So there is that other ditch where we like to pat ourselves on the back with our right hand and our left hand and know which hand is doing the patting at the moment. A sinner and a Pharisee are one and the same. Somewhere in there is meekness, humility, and serving because of the love of God that he has for all people on this earth. We are here to learn to do that with one another. And we're here for a much bigger stage. We're here to set an example for the rest of the world who will turn on God and show them how to live together in peace and in love. 
And the church still does not know the way to peace. We don't. We must learn. Within the remnant, God says He is going to, in that place, bring peace. Haggai 2.9, I think it is. It's going to happen. We have to respond to Him and respond to 1 John and to Matthew 5 and to Romans 12 and all 1 Corinthians 13 and all these things about loving the world as Christ and the Father love the world. We are in a training ground to be able to reign on this earth in love with the Father and the Son and to bring happiness, peace, and joy to everyone. So the love of God is not just between you and me. It's not just a human emotion or philios, as they say, if they want to get fancy and use Greek. It's the true love of God. There again, you got the word agape if you want to use it. But the true outgoing concern that God has, reflected not in our acuity with Greek, but in our words and deeds, and how we act and interact one with another, to prove to God that we have the kind of love where we're willing to live a life of giving and serving and teaching and showing and helping others throughout all eternity. We're in the training for that. Let's not miss the big picture. Let's not get so much localitis and me, me, me that we forget why we're here. We're here in training to be kings and priests with God forevermore. And to exhibit the kind of love Christ had. Giving of His time and energy while He was here and being willing to lay down His life in physical death if need be. Well, I spent the whole sermon on just a few verses, but this, this is important stuff. This is what it's all about. If we don't come to have this kind of love, and maybe we'll get to 1 Corinthians 13. I thought about it today, but I didn't get there. It's what it all boils down to. And we have opportunity here in spiritual boot camp to learn to treat each other the right way. So, our work is cut out for us. Go to God. Ask Him. Plead with Him to give us all the kind of love we need to fulfill His purposes on this earth.